Welcome to Fact and Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly, and this panel was recorded at Planet Comic Con in my hometown of Kansas City, Missouri. So I want to ask your forgiveness for this audio quality. It was not what I intended, but uh, hopefully you can still hear everything clearly. I mean, I'm sure you can hear everything clearly. It's just not the quality that I aspire to. Another thing, um, Corrections Corner, if you're a My Favorite Murder fan. Later in the episode, when I'm talking about Captain Marvel, I call Binary another character, when I meant it's another run of Captain Marvel. So I wanted to say that. Um, Check the show notes for links to the research from this episode. If you learned something from this episode, go to factandsciencefiction.com and uh, share the episode link with a friend. That would be awesome. Okay, uh, without further ado, here is the live episode. Uh, Welcome to Fact and Science Fiction. I hope you're in the right place. This is the podcast about science and pop culture. I am recording this episode, so um, that doesn't mean that I don't want any participation. It just means that if you do want to ask a question or um, provide a comment or something, uh, just raise your hand so I can point my microphone uh, in your direction. Um, so this is my second year at Planet Comic Con, um, but my first time presenting. And for this special live episode, I decided to do a um, kind of a roundup of the science of superpowers because it's a great introduction, I think, to a lot of different science topics. Uh, There's physics, there's biology, there's chemistry. Um, So, but since I only have about 40-ish minutes, uh, I only chose a few of them. And then I did something a little bit different in the second segment. So I know I can't cover everybody. Uh, I can only cover my favorites. So, without Further ado, um, if you haven't heard about fact and science fiction before, I started the podcast in 2017 um, as a kind of way to talk about my favorite sci-fi movies, TV shows, and books, um, but I'm also a Ravenclaw, so I couldn't just talk about uh, uh, science fiction without talking about a lot of research. Um, However, I have to say I'm not a scientist. My uh, bachelor's degree is in psychology and my master's is in communication. So basically that just taught me how to uh, read research articles and then sum them up for regular people. So (laughs) I might get things wrong and that's why I encourage you to um, participate. All right, um, let's see. I've done episodes on epigenetics, alien intelligence, um, using data science to forecast crime. So if you are interested in learning more about all these kinds of topics from a more general public perspective, um, I encourage you to look up fact and science fiction um, on any of your podcast apps. I should be there. All right. The first superhero I wanted to talk about is very timely, and someone not a lot of nerds in the science world have looked at is Captain Marvel. So Captain Marvel, the movie, is in theaters right now, and while the comic book character has been around in some form, at least since the 1980s, the current Carol Danvers is based on the Kelly Sue DeConnick 
run from the 2010s, and that is the version I want to talk about today. So, if you don't know, Captain Marvel, aka Carol Danvers, was a human pilot in the US, but then she absorbed the energy from a Kree device that gave her a variety of powers. Strength, near invincibility to many things that should have killed her immediately. Uh, but the coolest power she has, I think, is the photon blast. So you may hear them called sparkle fists or fire hands. According to the movie, Carol can create heat and light seemingly out of thin air and weaponize it to create a forceful blast uh, that can burn through metal doors, blast through stone, but somehow she can also show restraint and only knock down people. So uh, what's the story? So uh, Captain Marvel most likely has the ability to manipulate electromagnetic energy. And this can take the form of light waves, but could extend to UV rays and nuclear energy. Especially when Captain Marvel movie version has her breakthrough and gets to use her full powers. So there's no definitive canon resource that explains what Captain Marvel can do. So I'm not sure if she generates this energy from herself or just manipulates the energy around her. But for a photon blast, I think about it like a flashy laser. So lasers can go through objects, but can also use their energy to force objects to move. It's also easier to make lasers follow a direct path such as aiming a weapon or performing some function like reading a CD. Um, explain that stuff explains lasers pretty well. So they're more than just powerful flashlights. Um, the difference between ordinary light and laser light is like the difference between ripples in your bathtub and huge waves on the sea. So you've probably noticed that if you move your hands back and forth in the bathtub, you can make pretty strong waves. If you keep moving your hands and step with the waves you make, the waves get bigger and bigger. Imagine doing this a few million times in the open ocean and before long you'd have mountainous waves towering over your head. And a laser does something similar with light waves. It starts off with a weak light and then keeps adding more and more energy so that the light waves become ever more concentrated. However, of course, in the world of comic books, Carol's photon blasts look way cooler and are way more intense. So that's why, um, People compare Captain Marvel's movie powers to the character of Binary, um, which is another comic book character, uh, and her powers mirror those of a star. The process by which stars can split and squish atoms to create energy is one of many reactions going inside her cell structure to give her power. And this is from CBR.com. This has resulted in a character where no matter what happens to her externally, she can take that energy, bring it inside herself, and express it in any number of different ways. So uh, she uses this energy, this opportunity to turn that energy into heat. So uh, that becomes kind of clear, especially in the beginning of the movie. So as far as the thermometer goes, uh, Captain Marvel is like a nuclear reactor. So she can direct that fusion energy wherever she'd like to. Instead of concentrating this energy all into one beam, she's able to dial out the waves and continuously control the field of heat. So one presumes that she never has cold hands or feet because of this power. So um, when I was looking into Captain Marvel and looking at photon blasts or what they could or could not do, I was also curious about the idea that we could absorb energy like Carol and like a lot of superheroes. So I uh, turned to The Incredible Hulk and Captain America. So if you remember, Bruce Banner absorbed gamma rays and Steve Rogers had to absorb so-called Vita rays in the steel capsule in order to, for the super serum to work. 
but uh, I wanted to know if we can absorb energy like that and have it be a good thing. So um, Stanford University uh, uh, released an article for a few years ago about the origin stories of Captain America and the Incredible Hulk that can help us understand heroes like Captain Marvel as well. So postdoctoral research fellow in biology, Sebastian Alvarado, speculated about how fictional radiation like beta rays or gamma rays, uh, gamma rays are not fictional, uh, beta rays are, uh, can have some positive effects. These are, however, speculations, and you are not encouraged to expose yourself to those kinds of radiation. He said that in the last 70 years, scientists haven't created a real super soldier serum recipe, but they have identified the specific genes involved in regulating muscle mass such as myostatin inhibitor, and improving the oxygen-carrying load of blood. These also have developed tools for selectively activating and deactivating individual genes, like flipping on a light switch, and this process is called epigenetics. So Alvarado says that we have a lot of gene editing tools, like CRISPR-Cas9, that could theoretically allow you to seek out and turn on genes that make your muscles physically large, make you strategically minded incredibly fast or increase your stamina. However, kind of targeting those genes uh, is very limited. These tools and their ability to alter genetic limitations are under lots of research by pharmaceutical companies and government labs to find safe and functional delivery systems for these editors. That's where the vita rays could come in. So these drug-delivering metaphorical capsules can be designed to release their contents only when subjected to certain wavelengths of light. Several current systems involve ultraviolet light, but they probably could be triggered by whatever wavelength constitutes vita rays. Simply inject the capsules containing instructions for, say, muscle growth into Steve Rogers' major muscle groups and again give them a zap of UV light. And this is kind of how it would work. It worked in the movie. However, these kinds of experiments are not in human trials on an ethical level. Um, but if you Google some stuff, biohackers have conducted self-experimentation both for science and notoriety um, and profit. Uh, Dr. Josiah Zayner injected himself with a myostatin knockout gene, um, which uh, myostatin, like I said earlier, uh, inhibits muscle growth, so if you were to knock it out, it wouldn't stop your body from producing muscle fibers and getting, getting bulky. Um, that occurs naturally um, if you have that mutation, and I do recommend that you Google image search myostatin knockout dogs. Um, they look like cartoon characters. You'll just see a bunch of uh, pit bulls and whippets, and they're just so huge. Um, anyway, this guy thought that if he injected himself with a uh, CRISPR kit with a myostatin knockout into his bicep over a live stream, that he would then grow uh, muscles and maybe get like Chris Evans pecs. However, any biologist will tell you that that's not how that works. So, <laughs> um, so for one reason, the uptake of the injected DNA um, would be low, like the rate of it accepting that uh, knockout into the nucleus because our whole body is designed not to just accept foreign objects into your cells. Um, he also combined his myostatin knockout with a substance designed to facilitate CRISPR genes. It's called PEI. And 
Uh, it's worked well in like petri dishes, but has never used to inject into living organisms. So he, this was obviously just a publicity stunt. Zaner may succeed in knocking out a few copies of the myostatin gene, but that would not result in his muscles getting bigger. So any biologist could tell him that wouldn't work. So this was probably just a publicity stunt. Um, however, these things are currently under research. Uh, the most likely any changes that we'd see with CRISPR would be done from in utero, in utero editing. So, but I was still really interested in the radiation and how that could help. So there is an entire research journal called Superhero Science and Technology, and I recommend you Google it. It's open access. Only one issue has been released so far, but every article is fantastic. Um, I read the article Real Life Radioactive Men by Jim O'Doherty, Bruno Rojas Fisher, and Sophie O'Doherty. In their article, they point out that radioactive energy is really great for science fiction creators and comic book writers because it's kind of a catch-all. It's invisible, proven to be highly destructive, and still mysterious enough that it's almost believable. The general public knows so little about radiation that it can basically do anything in someone's imagination. So how does it work for heroes like Bruce Banner? First, they're, because they're scientists and science communicators, uh, the authors want to explain why radiation can be harmful. So in a broad definition, there are two types of radiation. There's non-ionizing and ionizing. So think back to a chemistry course and the box of a Himalayan salt lamp. Ionization occurs when an atom gains or loses electrons. If it loses electrons, it becomes positively charged. If it gains electrons, it becomes negatively charged. Does this sound familiar for everyone? Yeah, okay. Um, after that process, the atom is now called an ion. So if that's what ionizing radiation is, then non-ionizing radiation would not ionize. Okay, um, so ionizing radiation um, typically removes electrons from atoms, and that is the kind that harms our bodies. So that would be UV radiation, gamma radiation, and x-rays. Exposure to ionizing radiation can lead to two different effects known as deterministic and stochastic, and stochastic means random. So both effects apply to the exposure pattern of the Hulk. Firstly, deterministic effects occur upon receiving a large dose of radiation over a short amount of time, um, for instance, being exposed from a nuclear blast. Damage, damaging biological effects are certain to occur above a well-defined threshold, and this threshold is called a gray, which was cool because I thought of gene gray. And a gray is the absorbed dose per unit mass or joule per kilogram. So examples of deterministic effects include reddening of the skin, so that's between an absorbed dose of 2 to 10 gray, and cataracts, which is any exposure above 1.5 gray. For Bruce Banner, it's kind of difficult to calculate the dose that he received. Um, in the original comic, he was many miles away from the blast, and although radiation dose decreases with distance, so far superhuman strength has not been observed to be a side effect. Most likely, Bruce Banner would get acute radiation sickness or die. But that's no fun. Uh, Sebastian Alvarado from Stanford wrote that, for instance, when gamma radiation hits DNA, it breaks the molecule's double strands, ladder-like helix, 
Um, your body can repair a few breaks without significant loss or function, but if many breaks occur, um, then the repairs become sloppy and new instructions can be keyed into the genetic code. Again, Sebastian Alvarado, I believe, uh, was a well-meaning scientist who wanted to speculate uh, and have fun with these ideas, and then a communication specialist from Stanford just wrote it all up and, as if um, it could occur, that it was more likely than it actually is. But anyway, in the world of comic books, if Bruce Banner was um, exposed to that kind of radiation and it destroyed so many of his DNA strands, and then they were rebuilt with different instructions uh, that that could uh, theoretically turn him into the big green hole. Um, Superhero Science and Technology, that other article I mentioned, um, wrote that ionization events are super unpredictable. That's why it's called random. Um, so Bruce's genetic mutations would be unpredictable and trillions of his cells would be affected. And if his cells are mutated in some way, those mutations can be transcribed and then he could pass those on to another uh, generation. Ionized radiation is so random that it would be unlikely that those mutations could be organized enough that that would cause a superpower to develop. Um, we have way more examples of acute radiation exposure leading to harmful effects. Uh, over the course of months and years. For example, um, in the 1920s, uh, women who worked in clock factories used, painted radium on clock faces to make them glow in the dark, and that uh, over the course of working there for years developed anemia and certain cancers. But maybe there was something special about Bruce Banner that made him resistant to the harmful effects of ionizing radiation and gave him the ability to re regenerate those dead cells. Um, for example, bacteria like E. coli can be bombarded with radiation and still regenerate. And um, at least the movies have brought up uh, that he did, like Bruce Banner did a lot of uh, research with regeneration and those kinds of organisms that do that. So radiation is not all bad um, all the time. Medical researchers are still experimenting with ways to use radiation in the diagnosis and treatment of diseases and cancers while minimizing the harmful effects. There is a form of radiotherapy called total body radiation, which exposes a patient to ionizing radiation to deliberately suppress the immune response. But why would they do that? Um, basically to help the body not reject foreign invaders, such as transplanted bone marrow and transplanted stem cells. So before I wrap up this section on radiation, Alvarado from Stanford had one more thing to say about the Hulk and I thought it was pretty weird, and I wanted to share it with you. As for the Hulk skin turning green, anyone who has suffered a nasty bruise has firsthand knowledge of the process that might be behind this transformation. When you bruise, red blood cells at the point of injury die, and the oxygen-carrying molecule on their surface, hemoglobin, begins to break up. One of hemoglobin's metabolites, Alvarado said, is a molecule called biloburdin. That's not right. Um, which can make the blood appear green and is responsible for the avocado hue at the edge of a bruise. So Bruce Banner could basically turn into a big, huge bruise. And that is probably, yeah, avocado hue bruise. And I want you to take that with you when you leave here. Just that one thing. To be honest, my favorite superpower is super speed. It is 
if I could choose just one, it would be that one. Uh, for many reasons. One, I could do so many things in a day. Two, it pretty much just lends itself to super strength by just running into things really fast. Three, I'm fascinated by the concept of having a crazy metabolism so uh, that I could just eat anything and just burn it off. Um, so, so much wish fulfillment. Um, so I thought about metabolism and energy when I watched Ant-Man and the Wasp a, bit, a few months ago. It's on Netflix. And uh, Paul Rudd talks about, I only call him Paul Rudd. Um, I will call him by his character name in a minute. <laughs> he talks about how he got really big in, um, I think it was Civil War. He said he had to sleep for like three days after that. So a few years ago, I found a science communication blog called noticing.co. And they had a few articles about mass and metabolism that really stuck with me, and it applies pretty well to Ant-Man and the Wasp. I also got research from the book The Science of Superheroes by Lois Gresh and Robert Weinberg. So what does it take to increase your mass like that or decrease your mass to the size of an ant? So this may surprise you, but according to the laws of physics and biology, you can't just do that. Uh, things do not just scale up. Big things need to be big, and small things need to be small. Otherwise, they will either collapse in on themselves or explode. But why? Why can't things just scale up or scale down? In physics, it's called the square cube law. Unfortunately, there is no way to scale up size or bigness in all three dimensions at the same rate. So imagine Scott is a human-sized cube. And this square cube law says that if you increase the size of Scott cube to even two times his size, that his surface area, like how much material would be needed to cover Scott cube times two, would actually be four times the size of regular human-sized Scott. So just, just try to imagine this. And not only that, but his insides, the volume of Scott cube, would be eight times the size of regular Scott. So the science of superheroes were like, obviously this volume would crush all of Scott's bones before you could even be 60 feet tall. And even if he could survive that weight, he wouldn't be able to fight anyone. Imagine if you got twice as big, but four times as heavy. And, um, and then try to fight somebody. So your strength would be literally cut in half. But they ended their thought experiment there. The reason I like noticing blogs so much is because they really drill down into the um, biology at the cell level is the why the volume increasing so much would be bad. It turns out that humans were made to be this kind of human size range and it all has to do with metabolism. So the noticing blog folks uh, did not write about superheroes. They wrote about shrews and elephants. Um, one of the smallest, fiercest animals and one of the largest, slowest moving animals. Is it easier to talk about elephants and shrews or do you want me to carry on with Scott Cube? Scott Cube, okay, great. So, uh, Scott Cube and Shrew. Scott Cube and Ant, okay. So, uh, let's imagine Scott Cube and um, Ant. So, obviously the Scott Cube is much, much bigger than the Ant, and if we were to, the way that the Science of Superheroes uh, talked about it is about, he's about 30, times bigger than the ant. But Scott Cube has about 30 times the amount of stuff inside. Uh, cells, uh, burning fuel, and creating the energy that he needs to uh, move. 
and the ant has fewer cells to uh, to run their bodies. Okay, I have to go back to the elephant and the shrew. I'm so sorry. This is just in my just in my notes. <laughs> okay, so. The shrew weighs just under an ounce, about 20 grams. The elephant is 11,000 pounds. In other words, the elephant weighs 250,000 times more than the mouse, than the shrew. So let's imagine that we scale that shrew up to elephant size, just like an ant-man. If a mouse were, or if a shrew were to grow 250 times bigger to become an elephant, once it gets elephant size, it has trillions and trillions of nice warm cells bunched together in its whole body. And because it's grown 250,000 times bigger, that means its surface area has grown twice that amount because of the square cube law. So it has more surface area, more skin to let all that heat out. So uh, let's just forget that the shrew has to carry around eight times the volume, just focus on the heat and metabolism. So it's not a big problem. While the elephant has trillions more hot cells on its inside than the scaled up shrew, it hasn't got nearly enough surface area to let all that heat out. And if they were to burn the kind of energy and to have all those nice trillions of hot cells in there um, and less surface area to let that heat out, um, then it would just sit in there with no place to go. If an elephant burned fuel at the same rate as a shrew would, then its insides would get so impossibly hot that at some time, some point it would just explode. So we have trillions of cells burning off energy and creating heat. And if you burrow down all the way down to a typical cell in an elephant and then compare it to a typical cell in a mouse, amazingly the two cells behave differently. So elephant cells aren't lazy, they're always working, but compared to mouse cells, elephant cells typically do their job a little more slowly. They burn less fuel to get the job done and being more efficient, they run cooler. So that's why elephants don't spontaneously combust and neither do we, much to my relief. An elephant is built from cooler stuff than a mouse. Even though an elephant has many, many more little heaters packed inside its body, each heater runs at a much lower setting. So um, that's also why that the elephant, um, if you compare like proportionally what they eat in a day, a shrew has to eat like 16 times its body weight in food to just stay alive. Well, an elephant just has to uh, eat about like 5% of its body weight in foods because they, aren't, they just aren't burning it off. And if they did, they would explode. Shrews, we now know, are at the other extreme. A shrew is built from hungrier, warmer stuff. Shrew cells are like jumping beans in a cocktail shaker. And so all the way down to the level of the cell, the met metabolic rate of each creature, how much oxygen it gulps, energy it burns, heat it releases, is carefully tuned through uh, evolution to meet the challenges of its size. Big creatures aren't just giant versions of little ones. Instead, they're built from cooler and calmer parts their internal fires just burn at different rates. As far as we know, this wide-ranging rule holds true for most animals on the planet, not just mammals, but also birds, fish, crustaceans, snails, amphibians, reptiles, insects, and more. Thanks to this rule, our mammalian ancestors could grow from the twitchy, frenetic, shrew-like creatures that burrowed beneath the world um, uh, into the tumbering giants, uh, lumbering giants that roam our world today. And thank goodness for the scaling difference. Think about what would happen if the bigger animals on Earth had the temperament, the appetite, the needs of a ferociously hungry shrew. Uh, remember what I told you about how much they eat. 
that would be so horrible, so inconceivably terrifying that it would be a good idea for a science fiction movie. We were also we were also not meant to be bigger than ant. Uh, uh, also not meant uh, ants were not meant to meant to be bigger than us. It's um, possible that if we were to be able to scale down to ant size, we would also literally freeze to death. Um, small is leaky. You can see this idea play out all over the place. When you leave a batch of cookies out to cool, the small ones cool the fastest. Babies have a hard time staying warm than we do because their surface to volume ratio is much larger than yours or mine. Small things lose heat more easily, and this explains why warm-blooded animals are bigger in cooler climates. Now, I don't want to ruin all the fun. Uh, that's one of the reasons um, I do this podcast, listing the reasons why it's completely impossible according to the laws of physics and biology just isn't why I make this podcast. So here is I'm going to do a little bit something different. Um, if we were able to figure out how to scale down and make a human size uh, the size of an ant, we would actually be so strong proportionally that we'd be stronger than any carpenter ant. And they're known to be so strong, right? You know, carrying things 30 times uh, their weight of trees and stuff. So this is another thing. Uh, big bruise, Bruce Branner. Two, uh, if an ant is one quarter inch long and weighs approximately three milligrams and can lift 50 times its own weight, around 150 milligrams, will increase its size to about six feet. Um, that's 296 times its original size. So we'll say we'll round up to about 300. So our ant would weigh 178 pounds and would be able to lift 30 pounds because the ant strength would be cut in half. Most likely, our ant wouldn't able, be able to lift its own weight. However, if humans were to shrink, so let's imagine Scott Hugh, uh, if he was able to lift 100 pounds uh, as human size and we would shrink him down to the size of a carpenter ant, about a quarter inch tall, so we're using the factor of 300 but in the opposite direction, then his um, surface area would shrink, his volume would shrink, and he would be able to lift about 500 milligrams, so about 166 times his own weight. So that's more, way more than 330 times the ant size can lift. Now that wasn't a consolation to you? Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. So this, so that wraps up the the science of superheroes. I know it was a lot of information. Um, so this second segment for the rest of the show is uh, I wanted to do something a little different, and this segment is called Outliers. So let's take a look at some of the most amazing people that through one way or another have developed traits that only some of us dream of having, such as uh, Finnish, Finnish Olympic skiing champion Eero Mantaranta may have been the first Finnish sportsman um, to test positive for home hormone doping, um, but that was acceptable in the 1960s, but he probably didn't need it since he had genetic super endurance powers. Along with other members of his extended family, he had a condition resulting from a mutation in the erythropoietin receptor gene, which resulted in him the ability to carry 50% more oxygen in his bloodstream, a trait that is quite advantageous uh, advantageous in endurance competitions, and that is also what they speculated that Captain America uh, had after he had the super serum, was just able to more efficiently um, have uh, oxygen in his bloodstream and muscles. So, 
when most people think of genetic disorders, they usually picture the ones that result in physical frailty, but however, there should be also genetic disorders on the other side of the bell curve that result in superhuman strength, such as Liam Hoogstra. So Liam has a rare genetic condition um, in which he does not have myostatin at all. So if you remember previously, the myostatin knockout um, will knock out uh, muscle growth inhibitors. So individuals or animals with a deficiency have larger muscles with little body fat. I tell you, please Google image search myostatin knockout dogs. While Liam doesn't appear to boast any fantastical car tossing strength, he is naturally stronger than all his peers without doing any training. And he, uh, they say this is the downside, uh, he has to eat more than his peers in order to keep up with his body. So I told you, having superpowers means you can eat whatever you want. Uh, and that's especially true for my next superpower uh, with Mikel Lotito. Mikel Lotito is a French entertainer known as Mr. Eats It All. Uh, have you heard about this guy? All right. Throughout his career, Mikel consumed all manner of non-consumable objects made of glass, rubber, and metal, uh, which he would also accompany with uh, drinking oil. One of his most impressive feats was consuming an entire Cessna 150 airplane. How do you eat an airplane? One, one bite at a time. He, he, he ate small bits over the course of two years. So there's a couple things going on here probably. First, Mikkel appeared to suffer from a condition known as pica, a disorder characterized by the appetite for non-consumable foods like dark, dirt, rocks, and metals. Um, he also has an abnormally thick lining in his stomach and intestines that makes it possible for him to eat sharp metal objects and consume toxic substances that would kill a lesser person. Um, taxi actress Mary Lou Henner has a condition known as hyperthymesia, or the ability to recall every tiny dumb detail in your life going back decades. Mary Lou is one of 25 con confirmed cases of hyperthymesia, which allows her to pinpoint the smallest details of her life on nearly any given day. She told ABC that rifling through her memory is similar to viewing little videos moving simultaneously. When somebody gives me a date or a year or something, I see all these little movie montages, basically on a time, time continuum, and I'm scrolling through them and flashing through them. While some scientists theorize hyperthymesia as a result of an obsessive compulsive need to constantly review and therefore renew one's memories, um, there is also a physiological link in which the temporal lobe and caudate nucleus of the brain are found to be enlarged in the afflicted. They call it afflicted. I don't know. It would probably be pretty awful to remember every detail of your life. Super flexibility. Even if you don't know the name of Javier Botet, if you're a horror fan, the chances are you've seen his work. He was the titular character in the film Mama and uh, played Slender Man. While a lot can be done with makeup and CGI, it's no replacement for the spookiness that comes from someone with the ability to bend themselves in ungodly poses. Botet suffers from a genetic condition known as Marfan syndrome, which affects connective tissue throughout the body. People with Marfan tend to be unusually tall with long limbs and fingers and have abnormal flexibility. Marfan is Marfan is a spectrum disease, meaning that severe cases can lead to life-threatening defects in the heart and other organs. However, those with mild symptoms can live normal, full, healthy lives and have an acting career. Uh, no need for sleep. 
So uh, University of California, San Francisco, were able to locate a mother and daughter who share a, an abnormal copy of a gene known as DEC2, which affects the circadian rhythm. The result is they are short sleepers who need far less sleep than the average person. Um, it can affect as much as 5% of the population. Disease resistance. In the late 1970s, the virus that would later be known as HIV uh, ravaged the gay community, but one man managed to never get sick, uh, even as boyfriends and acquaintances around him fell to the then mysterious ailment. So Stephen Crone was found to have a Delta 32 mutation, which protected his CD4 white blood cells from HIV. Due to this small genetic change, which otherwise had no apparent effects, um, Crone was completely immune to it. With any disease outbreak, a few individuals in the population are always found to be in, immune for one reason or another. In these cases, uh, health scientists describe the disease and device treatments. So I'm reading the stand by Stephen King right now. I know, I just thought of it too. Anyway, uh, it's about a uh, apocalyptic uh, epidemic that wipes out like 99% of the population but only leaves a small group of people. I really recommend it, but it keeps me up at night. All right, leave no fingerprints. Dubbed immigration delay disease, um, this, <laughs> whoops, uh, <laughs> a dermatoglyphia is a genetic condition that leaves the afflicted without fingerprints. Um, they found this trait came to life when a Swiss woman was not able to enter the United States because of her condition. Aside from the frustrations that come with dealing with the various local bureaucracies, um, this rare condition would certainly be considered a superpower to any would-be criminals. The Iceman. Wim Hof is a Dutch athlete with a difference. He's known as the Iceman as he's able to survive extremely cold temperatures, which he says is due to his unique breathing exercise. Uh, he may achieve this by consciously hyperventilating, keeping his heart rate and adrenaline high. Uh, the recent uh, study suggested he can regulate his temperature with his unusual breathing method, leading to an increase in nervous system activity. After Hoff went through his preparation exercise to induce this effect, um, researchers put the Iceman in an MRI machine in a special suit and shot, shot him through with uh, cold water and then hot water in five-minute intervals. Some previous research has shown that this exercise makes Hoff's blood more alkaline since it becomes saturated with oxygen. But this researcher found that when exposed to cold, Hoff activates a part of the brain that releases opioids and cannabinoids into the body. These components can inhibit the signals responsible for telling your body you are feeling pain or cold and trigger the release of dopamine and serotonin. This result, um, the researcher said, is a kind of euphoric effect on the body that lasts for several minutes. However he does it, he's been able to withstand some extreme conditions including taking the world's longest ice bath in 2011, one hour and 52 minutes. He also completed a marathon in Finland in temperatures of about negative four degrees Fahrenheit in 2009, dressed in just shorts. Oh, and he climbed Mount Everest in shorts, too. So if you want to pay, like, a fee, you can take his class to find his, to, like, learn his breathing techniques. Uh, Rainbow Woman. An artist called Conchetta Antico has a peculiar power in which you can see way more colors than other people. It's due to being some, uh, having something known as a, or being something known as a tetrachromat, in which he has two different mutations on each X chromosome. 
She has four cones in her eye rather than three most people have. Um, although the mutation isn't that rare, half of the women in Europe might, may have it. Very few have reported having uh, enhanced vision like this. Though um, it's kind of one of those things that like, how do you know that what you're seeing is weird? Um, to Antico, something as simple as having as seeing a pebble can look like a rainbow. It's reported she can see 99 million colors apparent, uh, compared to just 1 million seen by most. The human calculator. Scott Flansburg is a machine, not because he's super strong or anything, but because he can solve calculations faster than a calculator. Listed as the fastest human calculator by the Guinness Book of World Records, uh, in 2001 and 2003, he was found to be able to add the same number to itself 15 seconds faster than someone with a calculator. So I am running out of time, so I'm going to just fast forward through this. Uh, last one, super smeller. Uh, Joy Milne from Perth, Scotland uh, has a peculiar power. She was able to smell Parkinson's disease on people before it was been, had been diagnosed. In tests conducted by Edinburgh University, she was able to successfully identify Parkinson's 11 out of 12 times. It's hoped that there would be a molecular signature responsible for the odor that makes it possible for a scientist to replicate the feat. Milne's husband died from Parkinson's in 2015, with her last promise to him being that she would investigate her special ability and help others, using her powers for good, just like we hope most of, most of the other people on this list are. So before I wrap up this episode, I wanted to talk about why we as fans try to make science fiction make sense. Why is the science fiction, the science of superheroes so popular? And I think there are three reasons. First reason, uh, comic books and movies are not enough. We want to know more. Because this research wasn't hard to find at all, uh, there are a ton of scientists who do these kinds of thought experiments and write these articles just for fun. Because they're often science fiction fans, and they know that these are the kinds of questions that people that get people interested in science. In fact, I found an article that was all about how to use Captain America to get college students interested in physiology. Um, reason two, we want to believe. If you've been interested in comics or science fiction movies or books since you were a kid, there's always going to be a part of you that will question if it's possible. And there are some instances in which the technology in science fiction has truly informed the development of real technology, like, echo, like exosuits for people with disabilities, rockets, robotics, and submarines. All of those were inspired by science fiction. Reason three, science fiction creators need to make their characters seem even a fraction believable. I recently interviewed the author David Siegel Bernstein, who not only writes science fiction himself, but wrote a book, a book similar to this topic called Blockbuster Science. And he said that science fiction writers need to limit the amount of lies in their work. If you can put in just a little bit of real science, if you can make your superhero abilities seem just a little believable by naming the real genes, that control muscle mass, or talk about metabolism, or radiation, or cloning. If you can use the real vocabulary for physics laws, then your audience will come along for the ride. Well, if you learned something from this podcast, or you know someone who would be interested in this topic, go to factandsciencefiction.com, and there are links to subscribe and stream previous episodes. Um, also, find me on Twitter and Instagram at factandsci-fi. And lastly, thanks for listening. Thank you.